Well, good evening, and uh, welcome to this evening's uh, uh, Ralph Miliband lecture on a very fundamental question, can China's political system sustain its peaceful rise? A question that of interest, of course, not only people who are Asia specialists, but is now very much a global matter. It's an absolute pleasure for me to welcome uh, Susan Shirk, who is the director of the University of California Institute of Global Conflict and Cooperation and chair in China and Pacific Relations at the Graduate School of International Relations and Pacific Studies at UC San Diego. She has received her PhD um, uh, from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in 1974 when I was a student there at the same time, so we must have passed each other in the, in the corridors. Um, she has traveled to, first traveled to China in 1971 as a member of the Committee of Concerned Asian Scholars, and her career has since revolved around the study of China <coughs> and Asia. In 1993, she founded the Northeast Asian Cooperation Dialogue, an unofficial track two forum for discussions of security issues among defense and foreign ministry officials and academics from the United States, Japan, China, Russia, and the Koreas, both of them. Yeah. From 1997 to 2000, Susan was Deputy Assistant Secretary of State with responsibility for China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Mongolia in the East Asian Pacific Bureau of the United States Department, of the State Department in the US under the Clinton administration. She's also a member of, among other things, the US Defense Policy Board, the Board of Trustees of the US Japanese Japan Foundation, the Board of Directors of the National Committee of the United States China Relations, the Trilateral Commission, the Council, get the message, the Council of Foreign Relations, and as an Emirates member of the Aspen Strategy Group. She has also currently serves as senior director of the Albright Stonebridge Group, a global strategy firm. Among her many formidable publications are Competitive Comrades, Career Incentives and Student Strategies in China, that was an early book in 1982, The Competitive Logic of Economic Reform in China, 1993, How China Opened Its Door, 1994, and China Fragile Power, How China's Internal Politics Could Derail Its Peaceful Rise, 2007. Here is someone who's had a remarkable career, consistent over time, a clarity of focus, enormous scholarly uh, bearing on the her subject, and yet at the same time has been able to operate at the interface between academic life and policy making. Rare indeed, and we're delighted to have you here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, uh, David. It is a uh, great honor to speak in the, this series, the uh, Ralph Miliband series, and to be here at LSE. It's my first opportunity to speak here, and I'm uh, very much looking forward to getting the perspectives of you and your colleagues and others in the audience about recent developments in China's foreign policy. You know, uh, I am actually a political scientist who focuses on comparative politics. I'm not an international relations expert. Uh, but after serving in government, I felt that I really needed to come to grips 
with Chinese foreign policy and especially U.S.-China relations. Um, and so I uh, went and inventoried Chinese policy toward different regions of the world that I hadn't focused on so much when I was in government. And then wrote a book called China Fragile Superpower, which really uh, kind of turned international relations into comparative politics because I focused very much on the domestic drivers of China's stance toward the world. And um, I'm actually a fan of Chinese foreign policy uh, up until a couple of years ago. Uh, I was very impressed that uh, China seemed so aware of the importance of building a reputation as a peaceful power. Uh, they talked about China having a peaceful rise. Uh, that phrase was later uh, abandoned in China because talking about China's rise was seen as a little too frank. Although actually I like that because let's face it, China is a rising power and I feel much uh, happier when all of us can agree on that, Ch the Chinese as well as those of us outside of China. They replaced it with the phrase peaceful development I'm still using the phrase peaceful rise. But China was so aware of the threat perceptions that would inevitably be created uh, in other countries because of its rapid increase in economic, political, and military power. And beginning in the mid-90s, they recognized that simply saying, we're not a threat, we're not a threat, why are you talking about the China threat theory, we're not a threat, those kinds of words were not going to persuade people. And instead, they set about making sure that their actions, their policies, especially toward their neighbors, as well as toward the West, uh, confirmed that although their capabilities were increasing, their intentions were friendly, were benign. And they did a, an excellent job of doing that. Um, uh, of course, the objective was to prevent these threat perceptions from motivating other countries to join together in a coalition to contain Chinese power, a balancing coalition. So there definitely was a geopolitical objective of trying to build that kind of reputation. They're really successful, especially with their Asian neighbors. They settled a lot of territorial disputes uh, in a way that gave the other country more of the benefit than they themselves got from the resolution of the territorial dispute. They um, worked very hard to establish free trade agreements with their neighbors and by and large just did not behave as a bully. Uh, the goal, of course, it, particularly in Asia, was to prevent the emergence of two opposing blocs in the region. 
one block centered on the United States alliances with Japan, South Korea, ASEAN countries, Australia, and another block consisting of China, North Korea, Russia. That, uh, I heard Chinese diplomats and foreign ministry officials and academics over and over again say that the goal was very much to be friends with everyone, to have a good neighbor policy, and to prevent the creation of these Cold War opposing blocks in the region. One way they did that was to participate actively in regional multilateral organizations. Uh, and when it came to relations with the United States, they were extremely accommodating. The United States had a whole set of um, requirements for China, including changing its behavior as a proliferator of mass destruction, opening up its domestic markets in order to join the World Trade Organization. And basically, China acquiesced. China changed its behavior in a way that made us working on China policy in the US government feel quite encouraged. We thought, okay, you know, many international relations experts say that rising powers almost always cause war. But this is a country we can deal with, we can cooperate with, and we were quite optimistic that this power transition as China rose in power was gonna turn out peaceful. Um, one of the reasons that I personally felt quite encouraged by the trend lines was that China's um, foreign policy, its peaceful rise strategy, was motivated by its focus on domestic threats. Uh, the argument of my book, Fragile Superpower, is that China's leaders are much more worried about domestic threats to their power than they are about any international threats. And that motivation, <laughs> that genuine motivation, <coughs> caused them to want to avoid any international conflicts that could slow down their economic development and derail uh, um, result in massive unemployment, labor unrest, and threats to Communist Party rule. So uh, I felt that this responsible power approach to the world was really quite credible. It wasn't an act. You know, many people said, sure, China's acting friendly and nice now but wait till it gets more powerful, then it will show its true colors. But I felt more encouraged because, first of all, I reject the notion that there's some essential China. You know, it's, a, it's, um, uh, it's being transformed every day. So the future stance is impossible to predict. But also I felt encouraged because this effort to achieve a reputation as a responsible power was so motivated by the focus on domestic 
challenges to their rule. So this, let me just talk a little bit about this domestic insecurity, which became particularly acute after the 1989 crisis, when you had uh, demonstrations in more than 130 cities throughout China, the leadership split on how to react to those protests, and the regime almost fell, only because the military uh, stepped in, obeyed Deng Xiaoping's orders to forcibly put down the demonstrations, did the regime actually survive? So from the standpoint of the leaders of the Chinese Communist Party, ever since that time, they have been very worried about a kind of repeat of this confluence of widespread unrest with splits in the leadership. Uh, in the very same year, 1989, the Berlin Wall fell in November, and communist governments in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe started to disintegrate. So again, that definitely reinforced the political anxieties of China's own leaders uh, that its own days in power were, all, were numbered. And so everything they have been doing since that time is designed to maintain the lifespan of Communist Party rule in China. Uh, the increasing number of protests in China um, also contribute to the sense of insecurity, although most of the protests are small scale and local. And actually, China's leaders talk all the time about their worries of how long the Communist Party rule can survive. They talk about social stability, which is really a euphemism for maintaining Communist Party rule. Um, and you hear these quotes like that by Premier Wen Jiabao, to think about why a country falls will ensure one's survival. So this is not some hidden insecurity. It's out in the open for everyone to see. So, wait back. So, up until a couple of years ago, this domestic insecurity was producing a foreign policy that was quite constructive and accommodating, and things were going pretty well. But beginning around the time of the Olympics, things started, uh, Beijing's foreign policy makers started doing some odd things that were hard to uh, understand for me and for those of us who are watching, especially uh, Sino-US relations. I'm not gonna do these in order, but I'm gonna sort of rapidly go through some of the recent developments that have caused some concern. First of all, President Obama's first visit to China was a cold one. The Chinese side refused to allow President Obama to have his speech 
in Shanghai to the students be televised directly uh, to the public in China, even though President Bush and before that President Clinton had been able to speak directly to the Chinese public. And the White House was definitely very frustrated um, that the Chinese side didn't want to get off on a good footing with the new president. They seemed to be very nervous that President Obama would do a repeat of what had happened in Cairo when he spoke to a very large crowd in the Central Square um, and seemed to inspire people in a way that cast a negative light on Egypt's own leaders. And in this case, China's uh, political officials were worried that President Obama, the comparison between Obama, who at the very beginning, I think they thought he was so charismatic that he would just sweep everyone away and people might march, you know, to start the revolution right then and there. Um, one of, uh, a, someone I know who uh, negotiated with the Chinese on this issue said they were just so worried that the reaction to President Obama might be so powerful that they just wouldn't let him speak directly to the public. So, um, and then the visuals from that visit were terrible. You know, look at him walking by himself on the Great Wall with not even a high-level official standing next to him. There was, the press conference was stiff and awkward. Only two questions could be asked. It was very, very different than previous visits by President Clinton and President Bush, which were much warmer. The following month, in December 2009, uh, the UN climate talks were a complete disaster. Uh, China's officials lashed out at the United States publicly to the media. Uh, President Obama ended up chasing Premier Wen Jiabao in the hallways to try to have a meeting with him. And uh, when the premier was in a meeting with other government leaders from other countries, and President Obama wanted to end her. The security men, Chinese security men, roughed up the Americans. It was, it was really pretty outrageous. And then in the meeting itself, uh, one of the senior Chinese officials uh, spoke up, interrupted, lashed out. It was disorganized, it was a mess, and it indicated it wasn't just that the two sides disagreed on the outcome of the meeting, it was that the style was much more openly confrontational than in the past toward the United States. Uh, there were also, in the last couple of years, have been these clashes in the waters surrounding China in the uh, exclusive economic zone, which is not the closest coastal waters. It's between 12 and 200 miles offshore. And uh, American military vessels are there collecting intelligence. And Chinese vessels, fishery patrol vessels, as well as military vessels, are coming out and creating confrontations 
um, of the sort that hadn't occurred in the past, and it's actually quite a dangerous situation. One of the most alarming trends over, over the last uh, 18 months or so is that China's official spokesmen and uh, diplomats are now expanding the use of this term core interests, which used to be limited to talking about Taiwan, the uh, island which has ruled itself independently, but which Beijing claims is part of China. But uh, right before the Olympics, uh, they started applying the term to the Tibet issue as well. And then in 2009 to Xinjiang. So core interests went from just being about Taiwan to also Tibet and Xinjiang. But you know, when I saw that, I felt I understood why this was happening. I wasn't so alarmed about it because uh, it seemed actually right out of my book, Fragile Superpower, because what happened is that the public in China really uh, didn't pay all that much attention to the Tibet issue or the Xinjiang issue until they saw these very vivid images of Tibetans and Uyghurs in Xinjiang attacking Han violently, violent attacks. Uh, on Han shopkeepers in Lhasa and on Han living in Xinjiang. Photographs, video went on the internet, netizens started paying attention, and they were very upset. They were mad, not just at the Tibetans and the Uyghurs, but they were critical of their own government for not adequately protecting the Han Chinese in those regions. And so they criticized them and drove a change in Beijing's policy, a toughening of Beijing's policy in order to defend itself from domestic criticism, which is something we'd seen before with Japan policy, Taiwan policy. So I felt like I understood how nationalist public opinion could be mobilized over the internet and lead to this change in policy. Um, the part of the uh, toughening of policy against the Dalai Lama and the Tibetans was also a toughening of a position uh, against CNN and the Western media uh, and against France, because there were pro-Tibet demonstrations uh, in many cities where the torch carrier, the Olymp Olympic torch carrier, went through. This one was in Paris, where you had a former athlete in a wheelchair who got roughed up by demonstrators supporting the Dalai Lama and more autonomy for Tibet. The, again, the online public got very upset about this. You had demonstrations outside Carrefour chain stores in China. 
and you had anti-CNN for the way they were reporting the Tibet protests. And what was amazing was that the Chinese foreign ministry spokesman himself got up and said, started criticizing the Western media for the way it was reported. And I remember at the time I asked a very senior foreign ministry official, I said, I don't understand why on the eve of the Olympics, when you're going to have hundreds, thousands of foreign media coming to China and you want them to write very positive stories about China, why are you attacking journalists, Western journalists now? He said, you don't understand. The netizens were not just attacking Western journalism, they were attacking us for allowing the Western journalists to write those kinds of stories. So we had to show that we stood with the netizens against the Western media. So the expansion of the notion of core interests when it comes to Tibet and Xinjiang, I think was very much mobilized by the commercial media and the internet in China. So it's not a good thing to see uh, new obstacles in Chinese diplomacy with European countries. Remember, they canceled the China-EU summit because Sarkozy had met with the Dalai Lama. Um, so it, it resulted, the toughening of the policy put new obstacles in the way of China's cooperation with Western countries, but at least I felt I understood why it was happening. It's a familiar pattern to me. But when Chinese foreign policymakers started defining the South China Sea as a core interest, that just was a puzzle to me. I didn't understand that. Because netizens, public opinion, they don't pay very much attention to China's claims in the South China Sea. These little atolls, these little islands um, in the South China Sea that are contested by China and a number of other Southeast Asian countries. So where did this new tough line on the South China Sea come from if it wasn't public opinion? We heard uh, the National Security Advisor, Dai Binghua, use the term in his meeting with Secretary Clinton back in May of 2010. Many uh, US foreign policy officials have told me that uh, working level Chinese officials were using the term in their demarches against, uh, with the United States. And at the ASEAN Regional Forum meeting in July of 2010, there was a real clash between Chinese Foreign Minister Yang Jiechir and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton when she and a lot of the other ASEAN countries called for China to try to um, discuss the issue in a multilateral context. So um, 
This could not be explained by the pressure of online public opinion, and it sent me looking for some better explanation of this, all of these changes in Chinese foreign policy. Just very quickly, let me mention of some other signs of this new style of Chinese foreign policy. First on the attack by a North Korean submarine torpedo attack on a South Korean naval vessel, uh, killing more than 40 South Korean sailors. Uh, this was a very tough call for Chinese foreign policy makers because, as I said earlier, Beijing has been trying to be friends with everyone and prevent two opposing blocs in the region. So, but when one of your friends, North Korea, attacks another of your friends, South Korea, you really can't be neutral. And uh, China's uh, position at the United Nations tried to be neutral, but by refusing to criticize North Korea, in effect, it was standing on the North Korean side. And in my view, this was one of the biggest blunders in Chinese foreign policy in decades because it sparked a very uh, negative response from South Koreans and also from other countries in the region who worried that China, by defending North Korea, was really um, acting like a bully in the region, whereas previously it hadn't done that. So um, there also are signs that the military has become a more influential voice in foreign policy process. Uh, military officials, military officers are making public threats uh, in the media. They have resisted efforts on the part of the United States to establish a high-level military-to-military dialogue. And so even when President Hu Jintao came to visit the United States, and this was one of the top three uh, objectives from the standpoint of the United States, was simply to establish a dialogue between our two militaries at a senior level. And yet, the Chinese military refused to do it and it was not achieved. Right before President Hu came to Washington, Secretary of Defense Gates went to visit Beijing. And there were signs then of frayed coordination at a minimum, between the military and the foreign ministry. Secretary Gates um, uh, was very disturbed because while he was in Beijing, the Chinese tested their new stealth fighter, the J-20. And when he went to visit with President Hu Jintao the next day, 
After a very constructive discussion, at the end he said, you know, President Hu, I need you to advise me on what to do when I meet the media in a press conference later on today, because I know they're going to ask me, why did China test its new stealth fighter while I was here? Is this a message to me, personally, to the United States? Can you help me explain, uh, figure out what to say to the journalists? President Hu turned with alarm to his generals who were lined up next to him and said, is this true? He clearly was surprised by the question. So this does not mean that he didn't know about the program, that he didn't know that it was going to be tested sometime soon. At a minimum, it didn't, he did not know that the test had occurred the day before, and the military did not brief him for a question that they had to expect was going to come from Secretary Gates. They blindsided him, which I know from my time in government, no staffer should ever do. So what is going on here that um, may be contributing to this more assertive stance on the part of Chinese foreign policy? Uh, and is the military in part responsible for it? Um, I'm going to skip over this because we're running out of time. Another foreign policy fiasco was Liu Xiaobo case. When Liu Xiaobo, a uh, democratic critic of the Chinese government, was uh, put into jail for political expression and then was given the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, the Chinese government went all out to try to persuade other countries, to other governments, to boycott, boycott the Nobel ceremony. It was, um, it was not very successful. Fewer than 20 countries, and most of them, you know, your standard rogues, if you will, uh, did not attend the ceremony. Uh, and, uh, and yet, they went all out, almost like the campaign against the Falun Gong of a decade ago, to twist the arms of other governments to get them to boycott the ceremony. Here, this is another instance that was not driven by nationalist public opinion. Because basically, no one in China even knew who Liu Xiaobo was. Because his writings have been censored out of the Chinese media, people didn't know uh, anything about it. So this made me, again, curious what is going on here. This is not something being driven by nationalist public opinion. There's got to be some other explanation. So, um, what is going on domestically in China that is causing this new, harder edge 
in Chinese foreign policy toward the West, toward the United States, and toward its neighbors. This is very important to try to figure out because it means that I mean, we want to know whether or not this is a temporary phenomenon or a long-term trend that is really going to lead to military conflict in the future. The first explanation, because you have to say, well, what has changed around 2008? And clearly it was the global financial crisis that was caused by the failures of America's own system, financial system, and from which China recovered first. This fact undercut um, uh, admiration for the US system among liberals in China, and it also created a misperception of Chinese strength and US decline, and a demand for a more assertive Chinese policy, both at the mass level, and I would hypothesize at the elite level as well. Uh, if you look at public opinion surveys, you see big changes in both China and the United States. As in answering the question, which country is the world's leading economic power? This is, of course, a massive misperception to see China as, a, as the world's leading economic power. It's, uh, uh, it's the second largest economy in the world, but it is, uh, per capita income is still uh, less than a sixth of America's per capita income, even, even if you use purchasing power parity. And uh, clearly there's still a huge gap between China and the United States. And yet, in the United States and in China, there is now a misperception that China is just as powerful or more powerful than the United States. And this creates, I would assume, a demand for China to stand up. A lot of folks in China are saying, look, it made sense to bite our tongue when we were weak, now we're stronger, and we should speak our mind and express our criticism of, of the West. Um, also, nationalist public opinion, I already talked, that's a contributing cause as well. Finally, not finally, sorry, penultimately, uh, this is, could be the result of the political campaign for power that China is in the midst of now. In fall of 2012, a whole new leadership group will be selected. Xi Jinping is the uh, presumed heir to power, but people, I don't really think Bo Lai is a serious contender for the number one position, but I had to put another picture up here uh, to make my point. Um, and I certainly, the important point is that everybody at the top 
in the top levels of the Chinese Communist Party is uh, competing to try to move up in 2012. I had the opportunity to speak to an old friend who's a Central Committee member um, about six months ago. I only had 15 minutes with him, so I immediately plunged in and I said, I'm really worried about Sino-US relations. He said, yes, me too. I said, what is going on? What explains it? And this was his answer. The campaign for 2012 has started too early. Hawkish views are too popular, which is kind of a, a Chinese political haiku. And certainly, the contest for power could be uh, motivating people to show that they are strong leaders asserting China's position in the world. But the search for an explanation has led me to ponder whether or not there are some deeper structural problems in the Chinese political system that are making it hard for Beijing to maintain this very restrained, peaceful rise approach. So let's very quickly characterize the nature of the Chinese political system at the start of the 21st century. It has weak central authority. There's no more strong man. We have collective leadership in the nine members of the uh, standing committee of the Politburo. General Secretary Hu Jintao, just like Jiang Zemin before him, is not particularly outstanding in any way and has no popular following in the country. Uh, no charisma, even though Hu Jintao might try to sometimes pose as if he has charisma, like Mao Zedong. And of course, this collective rule was really something engineered by leader Deng, post Mao leader Deng Xiaoping because they didn't want another strong man. China doesn't want to be led by a charismatic dictator who might go off half-cocked with things like Great Leap Forward, Cultural Revolution. Nobody wants that in China. But this collective leadership with, um, is difficult to sustain. And uh, it may be leading to some problems in the decision-making process that can help us understand why China's foreign policy has taken a turn toward a more hard-edged position. For one thing, the civilian control of the military is very thin. It is only through the Communist Party not through the government, 
And there's, whereas in the past, military leaders and civilian leaders were all the same people. Now we have a central military commission, which is a party organ, leading the military. And up until recently, there's only one civilian in it, General Secretary Hu Jintao. Now there are two, because Xi Jinping was, is now a vice head of the military commission. But effective civilian control of the military exists in one sense. We don't think that China's really a military dictatorship. It's not ruled by the military. But is there really effective civilian discipline over the words and actions of the military? If you look at the sort of things that these generals are saying in the media nowadays, or that fiasco when Secretary Gates visited, you have to say, I mean, in our system, somebody would be fired after that fiasco with Secretary Gates. And as far as we know, no one has been fired in China. The other feature of the political system today is that the composition of the Politburo Standing Committee and of the Politburo is determined by having representation of all the key bureaucratic interests. It's not about the individuals and their authority. It's about making sure that you've got some economic technocratic representation, that you've got the security apparatus has representation, that you've got the propaganda apparatus that has representation. The organization, the personnel part of the party also has to have representation. So it indicates that there are constituencies within the party, bureaucratic interest groups, that may be uh, increasing their power without very effective control in the hands of the Politburo Standing Committee. Um, and this is what Jack Snyder, international relations scholar at Columbia, describes as a cartelized political system in which power is concentrated in the hands of bureaucratic interests within the state who have their own self-interests and they put those, that self-interest first ahead of the national interest. Now you might say, well, it sounds like pretty familiar. Um, we have, of course, bureaucratic politics within democracies as well. But there, is, uh, there are different patterns of accountability. And in this system, these parochial bureaucratic interests are not actually accountable to anybody. So um, Jack Snyder suggests that in a cartelized political system, you get decisions that are made by a log roll. In other words, everybody just sort of goes along with the with what these other parochial interests want to do, you don't have, say, the standing committee sitting there thinking through debating 
Well, if we do this, what will be the costs and the benefits? And operating as a cohesive uh, collective leadership. Instead, what may be happening is that the security apparatus say, they just go round up Leo Xiaobois. They throw him in jail. They create a fait accompli that then others, like the propaganda apparatus, have to support. The, even the technocrats and the foreign ministry have to then engage in this effort to get other countries to boycott the Nobel Peace Prize ceremony, etc. So uh, it's possible that the trends that we see are the result of a disjointed decision-making by log rolling among these parochial interests. And there are signs that the security apparatus, the propaganda apparatus, the party, central office organs, and the military, a group that I call the control coalition that's focused on maintaining party control and addressing domestic threats um, has become more powerful over the past decade or so. And the performance coalition of the economic technocrats doesn't have the voice that it had back in the 1980s at the start of China's 80s and 90s during a period of sustained market reform and opening. So the question is, are there these structural problems? Is the Chinese political system broken? Is decision making occurring by log rolling? Has the control coalition hijacked the state? Or can the Politburo Standing Committee exercise effective restraint over these parochial interests? There are some danger signs here. China has no National Security Council, so the interagency process is not very effective, including crisis management. Even though many high-level officials in China have been trying to create a National Security Council for some time. And the interagency for foreign policy, called the Foreign Affairs Leading Small Group, has not met, I have been told, and others have been told, for over a year. So there, that may explain why the policy process looks disjointed. So since China's foreign policy took a turn toward this kind of harder-edged approach, there has been a very effective international response. You've seen big military joint exercises in Asia by the United States and South Korea and Japan. As other governments have watched the way China is behaving, they are running to the United States and saying, telling the United States, please strengthen your military presence in the region. We want to join with you. We want to come on your side. We don't want to 
we're worried about the way China will behave in the future. So China's, uh, the cost to China is very significant. These two blocks that China didn't want to see in Asia are starting to emerge. So we should see some recalibration. This is a costly policy that China is pursuing, and we see signs of recalibration. Dai Binghua published a very important essay on the eve of the Hu Jintao visit, in which he said China is, not, is going to sustain its low-key, peaceful development approach to the world. And during the President Hu's visit to Washington in January, the atmospherics were quite good, and I was very pleased to see the Chinese media celebrating what a successful visit it was, which I think was a sign that there was, that the Standing Committee of the Politburo met and they decided that there should be a recalibration of its policy to get back on track of peaceful rise. But can they sustain it? So this is my last slide of what is a talk that's probably a little too long and complex, but as we think about what underlies the changes in Chinese foreign policy, we can make some predictions. And we can watch and see over the next few years what happens, and we will gain some understanding from watching what happens. First, let's say that this idea of a cartelized political system doesn't apply to China. And the, the, the collective leadership of the Politburo Standing Committee can exercise effective authority over parochial interests. They can weigh costs and benefits, and they can pursue a policy that is in China's interests. And certainly, the peaceful rise strategy has been very successful for China. It's benefited tremendously in terms of economic progress, in terms of international status and influence in the world. So why should it abandon it? Um, and let's hope that the Politburo Standing Committee has that authority and can exercise effective restraint. But it's possible that succession politics are making that impossible. If it is succession politics that is causing the problem, then I'm afraid we're in for a tough four years, not just two years. Because in China, there's a lot of competition in the two years after the Party Congress until the new leadership consolidates its power. But the good news is that around 2014, things should get better. Of course, in, the, in four years, a lot of bad consequences can 
uh, occur. But the third possibility is that this structural problem of parochial interests, the rise of the control coalition, and decision-making by log-rolling is really going to lead to excessive assertiveness on the part of Chinese foreign policy. And if that is the case, then I'm afraid we're in for long-term conflict between China and the United States, as well as China and its neighbors and other Western countries. So as we watch and see, we should gain better understanding as to the domestic dynamics underlying Chinese foreign policy. And um, of course, we probably have to make some bets today as we think about how to respond. So maybe this is one thing we can talk about during the discussion section is what would be the most effective way to encourage recalibration. So thank you very much. Well, thank you very much indeed. Do you want to stay standing or come and sit here? Which, I'll whichever, come sit. Whatever you prefer. Let me, let me just, just, we're going to take questions in just a second. Let me just ask one thought whilst listening to you. I couldn't one argue that this new self-assertion of China, as you were, the, 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 the increasing wide application of the idea of core interests, is, is actually quite modest. In a world that China is growing with increasing confidence, increasing economic success, increasing technological prowess, and so on, but still modest, because if you look at China's economic success and technological success compared to its military spend, the military spend remains very modest. As I understand it, there isn't even one uh, China carrier, uh, Chinese carrier available for use at this time. The Chinese spend on the military is a fraction of that of the United States. The United States continues to spend one quarter of world military expenditure, one half of world military expenditure. Mm -hmm. So China is faced with a world in which it's growing very rapidly, technically as well, but has made clearly uh, a number of political decisions which remain intact not to try at this stage to compete with American military spending or the proportion of Western military spend on the military. I would have thought that is a very positive sign. Uh, 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 and this is a time when there has been a long, to, well, a short-term shift in the balance of power over 2025, economic balance of power towards Asia and particularly towards China. And this is a time when China sent strong indications that it might want to be more included in some of what the uh, multilateral uh, 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 bodies. But the G1, as I call the US, G5, G7, G8, have for too long kept it at arm's length. So China is coming of age, despite, despite what you say, deploying relatively modest military expenditure in a world where it's still excluded from key multilateral bodies. So some excluded relative to its growing weight. So some assertiveness is not really a structural surprise. That's my opening thought. Well, I uh, certainly agree that it's an encouraging sign that China is not competing militarily, going all out. Um, you know, this is not Germany, Japan. 
in terms of massive mobilization of resources behind the military. It, the military modernization program, starting from a very backward military, is impressive and it is creating a much more formidable force, certainly in the region, but this is not an all-out no. uh, militarization of society by any means. So it's important to point that out, and I'm glad you said that. But I don't agree with you that China has been shut out of global forums. Um, in fact, I think the United States in particular has sponsored China's uh, entry into almost all international uh, multilateral forums and has sought to give China prestige, status, respect. I mean, I can tell you from my own experience in government that we worked very hard to give China respect because, frankly, compared to other things that China would like from us, respect is pretty cheap. It's not hard for us to do it. So we, you know, we have this wonderful state visit by Hu Jintao, and the, I can tell you it, the subtext of that, of course, was don't count America out yet because we did a beautiful job of entertaining him. It was quite lavish, I was happy to see. Um, but also, you know, China should have respect. And for too long, it was sitting at the margins of the international community. And there's every reason that it should have a seat at the table. And one hoped that participating in these international settings would have a socializing effect, uh, you know, uh, would encourage cooperation. And in fact, so much of China's concepts about this really have changed. So they use the win-win language, and you know all this too. So I guess I don't see that we've tried to keep China out. In fact, our strategy was to bring China in and to hope that it would lead to peace and cooperation. Okay, thank you. Many questions. Do you mind if we take four or five questions in a, in a row? You, well, uh, sure, that's fine because I have a hard up. time yes. giving short Robert, answers, Robert so Wade, it's a good we'll idea. Robert Wade at the back, just with a hand up there, and then we'll come up. We'll get lots of you in. Thanks, Robert Wade. Um, two points. Hi. Nice to see um, you. One, the first point is about your picture of Chinese decision making as disjointed log rolling, and I understand your argument, but Looked at from the outside, I also see examples of very long-term thinking, long-term strategy on the part of China, which uh, should make it the envy of uh, quite a number of Western democracies. For example, the case of Iceland. Um, uh, China has developed buddy-buddy relationships with Iceland in many kinds of ways. For example, it lent its weight, its strong support, both covertly and overtly to China's, to Iceland's campaign to be elected to the Security Council in 2008. And the point, what lies behind this and many other such cases is that uh, China is, is um, 
strategizing for what happens when the ice in the Arctic melts by enough for it to build giant container ships 500 meters long and send them through ships which are too big for Western European ports. The cargoes have to be transshipped. The question is, where is the transshipment port? Iceland is the obvious case, and China is very active in building a transshipment port in Iceland This for the decades ahead. So this is just one example of really long-term thinking. Um, and the second point is I wanted to ask you about Taiwan and what you think is, the, is a peaceful path for Taiwan. Do you think there's any chance that the Chinese leadership might accept a referendum on the future of Taiwan participated in only by the people of Taiwan? If you don't think that's likely, what do you think is a, a possible peaceful outcome? Not yet. Generally, yeah, lots of people want to ask you questions. Let's try and get a few out on the table. Um, I wonder if I could push your prediction a little bit further on the catalyzed political system. And I wonder what types of conflict might you see more prominent between China and the United States? Okay, the third question. Let's go along here. Just, yes, lady here. Yeah, pass it. Uh, with the upcoming power transition in 2012, how do you see the uh, elections in Taiwan affecting that? And will we see a more sort of turn towards Taiwan, especially if the DPP gets elected again? You just pass the mic down. Oh. Yeah, stop that. Come on. Um, I was just wondering, there were three sort of incidents that at least from the American perspective during this timeline that were kind of interesting, which were like cyber related, um, GhostNet, Byzantine, Hades, all of these things. I'm wondering how those play a part in your analysis, um, especially in terms of the military's control and the types of adventurism that they might be engaged in. One more. We'll have to take one more and then we'll bring you back here. Thank you. Thank we'll, you. Don't worry, audience, we'll come back to you in just a moment. Benign China, benign Chinese uh, uh, rights uh, will be, of course, a great thing for the world, and we all wish for it. But uh, there are realities that we cannot ignore. When China, China remains an oligarchy, and uh, it, uh, well, if not dictatorship, yes, it is certainly an oligarchy. And China is also very nationalistic. I mean, you give example of, example or two of China's nationalism. Uh, there is also uh, some uh, smell of what you call racism uh, in the uh, uh, in the Chinese people. Um, <clears throat> Uh, so, altogether, I think this is an explosive uh, uh, mixture, the oligarchy and the uh, nationalism. So, I mean, for China to be a benign power in time, and uh, rise as a benign power, uh, it will be necessary that China becomes some kind of democracy. So, so, I think we need to understand also, are there any moves towards democracy, and what can we do to... Uh, all right, so thank you. democracy in China. Thank you. Can we give you just five or six minutes to even free association on those, and then I want to come okay. back to I don't really have much to say about Iceland. I thought it was, it's very interesting. I'd say China's diplomacy and strategy is omnidirectional. So in other words, it's not like they've decided to do something in Iceland and they aren't um, increasing their footprint in other places. 
you know, it's pretty much happening everywhere. And it, uh, you know, there is a national ambition to be a um, powerful country, to have wealth and power, and to obtain raw materials, to be able to protect their own trade and maritime trade in raw materials and this kind of thing. So there's a lot of activity going on everywhere, not just Iceland. And you can say there it's long-term thinking. Yeah, I'd, I'd say there is long-term thinking of that sort. Um, I'm, I'm not, uh, but uh, some of it may also reflect a kind of log roll as well. In other words, the fishing ministry is pushing on its particular things. The uh, energy companies are pushing their projects. Everybody's pushing their projects. As a result, you get overexpansion. Everybody's doing it. Um, on Taiwan, What's interesting about China's policy toward Taiwan now is that it's the one area in which Chi Beijing is being even more flexible and accommodating than it was previously. So it's completely out of step with this more assertive trend that we've just been talking about. And I believe that's because Hu Jintao, it's his personal legacy issue, and he has protected it from the uh, domestic politics of the policy process that we're just talking about. What kind of conflicts with the United States? I think you're going to have a lot of economic conflicts with the United States. Economic issues uh, are really at the top of the agenda for, uh, you know, interdependence is a good thing. It encourages caution on both sides but it also gives us more things to fight about. On uh, Taiwan and the Taiwan election and the Chinese transition, if the DPP uh, wins the election, which I doubt it will, but if it does, uh, that will be a very big challenge for the top leaders of the party. Can they sustain this win the hearts and minds of the people of Taiwan approach, which has been very effective? Or will they go back to bluster and military intimidation? Uh, cyber attacks, this is a mystery to me. We don't really know uh, which groups in China are doing what, just like we don't know which groups in America are doing what. Um, what is tough is that in the U.S. media, and I'm sure in the media here as well, there's a lot of uh, stories about Chinese cyber attacks, which simply contributes to a reputation of China being a threat, a military threat and has a lot of negative spillovers for the overall relationship. How is that? Democracy? Uh, oh, democracy. Yeah. 
will um, I don't, you know, um, I guess the argument I'm making is not that authoritarianism per se leads to an expansionary or assertive foreign policy, but that uh, one particular type of authoritarianism, this cartelized system, can lead to that. And definitely that's the description of Germany and Japan that Jack Snyder proposed. But he contrasted it with the Soviet Union, which was able to exercise greater restraint. So I say there's different kinds of authoritarianism, just as there are different kinds of democracies. Okay, thank you. Yes. Um, thank you, Chair, uh, Ms. Chair, and thank you, Professor. Uh, to be frank, I'm a fan of President Obama, and I remember President Obama always said it is what makes America great is not the uh, wealth, not the arms, but the ideas and values, the inalienable rights of equality, freedom, and pursuit of happiness. So in your presentation, you mentioned the extension of China's core interest, which according to my personal understanding is also based on our values and ideas, that is the respect and value of the sovereignty and the territorial integrity. So I think and Chinese experts like you, uh, since you made the touched upon many concrete and practical issues, uh, I think I want to hear your comment on my observation and your ideas about this kind of idea, value. Thank you. Yes. Just go straight back, more or less. Uh, you focused very strongly on the politics, which is understandable. Uh, but I've got two um, linked questions. Um, one is that when China is the US is, is one of the US's major creditor nations, surely some of its peevish, peevishness towards the US has to be explained by the fact that the Fed at the moment is engaged in what China must consider an act of sheer vandalism against the US dollar. And the second linked question is that given the US fiscal monetary situation, given the vast amount of reserves that China has of US dollar assets, it looks like there's a train crash coming with the US um, debt position. What can China do? I mean, is this something that they've ever sort of discussed with you um, as, as a serious issue for them? And what yeah. can they do with regard to these vast dollar holdings, which they must yeah. be desperate right now okay. to be able to, um, to get themselves out of? Thank Great. you. Great question. Yes, let's go straight back whilst we're doing it, and then we'll come over. Um, with particular contested islands in the South, the, in the South China Sea and the Senkaku Islands the, uh, owned by Japan. Would you say Japanese, uh, sorry, China's contesting of those islands would be a genuine long-term strategic objective um, and expansion of its sphere of influence or is it a way of rallying, rallying pop, uh, popular opinion back home? And straight behind, we'll come back to you guys just in just a moment. Just, we'll stop here now after this question here. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think as uh, China, everybody say that China is rising, uh, China should be um, accustomed to the kind of, to accept criticisms from outside. And, but I think from your criticism of the Chinese foreign policy um, might be, uh, or the kind of Chinese assertiveness might be overblown for two reasons. One is that there is another side of the story which is the bad U.S. foreign policies. Uh, from a Chinese perspective, I think there, somebody said that chi uh, U.S. is maintain, trying to maintain a democracy domestically while trying to maintain an empire in the world and <laughs> drop bombs ev everywhere, which actually is the U.S. taxpayers' dollars. So 
Um, and I also feel that there's no uh, sufficient civilian control of the U.S. politicians over the U.S. military. It seems that you know it's easier in the U.S. to launch wars. So the uh, application for that is that maybe China and U.S. should go together and sit down to talk about this, how we can cooperate in this regard. I like this. Uh, and, and the second point I want to make is that... Quick. Yeah, is, is this um, another kind of... Um, because there is a perspective, a perception of weakness in the U.S. after the uh, financial crisis that contributed to overblown the Chinese assertiveness, or this is completely um, due to the Chinese side's foreign policies. Okay, I like your first question. I mean, it seems to me someone should ask this because you know I remember some years ago talking to Joe Nye, and he said certain things in the U.S. The U.S. is like a you know, a big cruise ship. Whenever someone becomes the new captain elected for four years, he has to decide how many chairs he can move on the, on the deck because the ship is going in a certain direction. All you can do is invest enough political capital in a few deck chair ships, so you've got to decide where. Because in the end of the day, it's driven by a military-industrial complex that's a fixed given. The, you know, the room for maneuver is in it. So I'm glad at least someone's put this reverse position to you, which it does look like, if you were in China, that the 20th century has been a story of, you know, uh, wars emanating, as it were, from Europe and the West. Uh, American foreign, foreign policy is engaged in war after war in the last uh, decade or so. And from Chinese position, you might legitimately ask, what is there to constrain U.S. foreign policy? But let's uh, let let's leave the f let let's let you have a go at these issues. Uh, the notion that uh, core interests really are based on the values of sovereignty and non-interference in internal affairs. Um, the definition of core interests has kind of been evolving, and. After China got a certain amount of pushback about expanding the notion of core interests from Taiwan to Tibet, Xinjiang, South China Sea, um, Dai Binghua <clears throat> very made a public statement in which he defined core interests uh, in a more uh, conceptual way instead of being associated with individual issues, territorial issues. And he said it was about sovereignty. He also said it was about the rule of the Communist Party. So um, I think that that's definitely the party's definition of its core interests. It's, it's focused very much on maintaining survive, surviving in power and that foreign policy is kind of derivative of that objective and you know um, but the notion of core interests is kind of an intimidating notion because it really says we will do anything we'll do whatever it takes to defend this core interest and that means we'll use military force um, and certainly the way a lot of the military spokesmen have used the term, it has that kind of threatening dimension to it. So at a minimum, it creates obstacles in the way of cooperating on other issues. With, and that's something that I do think is something we want to watch very carefully. 
Um, on the Chinese view of American macro policy and the stake it has in its massive holdings of American treasuries, you're talking about QE2, quantitative easing, et cetera. Of course, America makes macro policy from the standpoint of the recovery of the American economy. And the rest of the world is affected by those decisions. Um, however, I think it's very interesting that despite the criticism, there's no sign that the Chinese are actually stopping buying U.S. Treasuries. There's no diminution of the percentage going there. They don't really have a lot of choice. It still remains the most secure place to park your hard currency reserves. Um, South China Sea, Senkakus, uh, I think they're two different issues. Can't remember the person where he or she is sitting. Okay, yeah. Um, part of the uh, Senkakus and the relationship with Japan is a lot about rallying nationalist public opinion behind the Chinese government and the Communist Party. South China Sea is not the same kind of issue, though. It's not the kind of issue that the public really feels all that excited about. So um, the media like to run stories. You know, there is some popular appeal, but I don't think it's uh, felt as strongly by the public as relations with Japan, the competition with Japan, or Taiwan, for that matter. Um, U.S. foreign policy, I am not going to stand up here and give a long defense of U.S. foreign policy, but um, I do think that when it comes, to, uh, that the Obama administration has felt that America is militarily overextended and was seeking to try to roll that back until all of these rebellions in the Middle East and North Africa. You can see the resistance to getting engaged in a military action in Libya. It was kind of kicking and screaming brought in by the Europeans. And I think U.S. The, the greater danger is toward isolationism, not toward fighting more wars. Thank you. Uh, we have time. This left-hand side has been unfairly treated by me, so yes, we'll come up this way a little bit. Just if you can be really succinct, please, and then we should finish in a few minutes. You argued that there seems to be a disconnect between national interests on one hand and then parochial or nationalistic interest on the other. How severe do you think this is? Does it lead to just suboptimal foreign policy? Or is the peaceful rise um, a condition for the survival of the political system itself? Okay. Thank you. Mm. Um, yes, let's go up a bit. Yes. Gentleman move in the middle. Uh, yeah, you, you mentioned that uh, there was a shift in public opinion as um, a result of the financial crisis. And I was wondering whether, in your view, um, American elites 
have um, a sense of decline, whether the sense of decline exists within or among American elites. Yeah, um, yes, gentlemen at the back. Yeah. We'll probably take one more after you. Right. Um, I'm a Chinese national, so uh, I'll just uh, say what my impression I have on the particular point you made about uh, South China Sea. Uh, the impression I had is like um, Secretary uh, Hillington, uh, Clinton, sorry, is um, uh, quite an outspoken person. And uh, I, I read uh, from time to time uh, in Chinese media what she said. Um, about uh, that uh, our leaders standing on the opposite side of history. Uh, and on South China Sea, uh, the impression I had is it, it was a gray area in South China Sea where, where all parties in that sea maintained silence. But suddenly, um, the Secretary uh, Clinton showed up with a bunch of uh, you know, uh, countries like United to raise this issue and talk about um, a bilateral talk. That, that, that's what what I learned in the media. I'm not sure if that's right or not. Thank you. So my question, quick one, is how do you see like, some provocative power in the US side that could um, affect the uh, Sino-US relationship? Thank you. Thank you. And the last question. Yeah, I'm sorry. Thank you for your talk. You um, talked about the importance of public opinion on uh, Chinese decision making. And in that context, I can't resist asking a question about Bo Xilai, who um, you know, crop, cropped up in an elegant photo. He's one of a kind of new generation of quite popular and perhaps populist Chinese politicians. Can we expect to see more of that in Chinese leadership? And if so, does that mean it's going to be harder to restrain the impact and influence of public opinion on foreign policy making? Okay, very good. Um, we've got one guy here who just really wants to ask a question, so we'll just get it in quickly and just give you f three minutes to sum up. <laughs> to what extent has uh, China's rapid growth over the past 20, 30 years um, brought forth the middle and upper class, which in political economy we assume is very important for the democracy? democratization of a country. So to what extent has this economic growth uh, brought forth this almost, um, I wouldn't say new, but certainly a more powerful political um, unit within China? Okay. Thank you. Well, the first question is really very interesting. Is the peaceful rise a condition for the survival of the political system? If um, have parochial interests become so strong that it could lead to, um, it could sort of bring down the system. I have some concerns about that, actually, especially the security apparatus and the propaganda apparatus, uh, because uh, they're overreaching in a way that is uh, reducing the respect for party rule. People can see the censors taking uh, criticism off right away and then padding the internet sites with positive uh, pro-government remarks. And there are a lot of people in China that are feeling frustrated about that. Um, the security apparatus is taking a very heavy hand for no reason, especially after this um, Jasmine revolution. It's overreacting in ways. I, my friends in China, who tend to be in the performance coalition, or journalists, 
Chinese journalists have a real sense of crisis about that. So I think the peaceful rise was really working for the party leadership very well. I hope they recalibrate and get back to it. Um, do American political elites have a sense of that America's on the decline? There's a lot of hand-wringing right now in the United States. A lot, Americans are feeling kind of down on themselves. And uh, that is definitely um, a problem. It's a political problem in the United States for the administration. On the other hand, there are some encouraging signs about economic recovery, manufacturing jobs are increasing. You know, there's, it's not all doom and gloom, but it's definitely a hard time in, in American society right now. Um, Secretary Clinton. Uh, Secretary Clinton spoke a little too bluntly. I do that myself as you hear here, um, recently about uh, the Chinese political system li li living on borrowed time. That wasn't a very diplomatic thing to say. Probably a mistake. Um, although, let's remember, President Clinton in the press conference in Washington, right to Jiang Zemin's face, President Jiang Zemin's face, said something about China being on the wrong side of history. So uh, I guess it runs in the family. <laughs> um, as to what happened at the ASEAN Regional Forum, what Secretary Clinton said about uh, calling on China to discuss South China Sea in a multilateral setting was something that we had uh, Secretary Albright had said back in 1998, it really wasn't anything new. And um, the, what was interesting was that the Southeast Asian countries all spoke up more forcibly than they had a decade ago because they are frustrated that there's been a lot of harassment of fishing by these other countries in that area and they are feeling frustrated at Chinese actions there. Now, you're not going to learn that from the Chinese media. And um, one thing that really does worry me about uh, the last 18 months or so is that almost all the reporting in the Chinese media now takes a very conspiratorial view of the United States and the West trying to contain China. And that's a return to the kind of rhetoric that we'd seen in the early 90s. Then that changed, and now we're getting back to that. And I think that is really something that is quite dangerous. Um, Bo Xilai. Bo Xilai is a new style politician who is trying to use the media and the internet to build a public following. I would expect, given the changes in the media environment in China with the commercial media and the internet, that you're going to see more of that kind of politician. And that will be a major challenge to uh, the party. Because right now they want, to, at all costs, not to reveal any differences at the top. Because we saw in Tiananmen 
that splits in the leadership will uh, kind of create a political opportunity structure for more mass protests and participation. So, but I expect we're going to see more of it in the future. It's just too tempting for ambitious pol politicians not to do that. The middle class is growing in China, and the middle class favors the peaceful rise strategy, basically. But one problem is that there's no way for them to really participate in politics. And in fact, the interest groups that have the greatest stake in peace between China and its neighbors and other countries, like private business or coastal provinces, really don't have a voice in the foreign policy process. The Chinese political system, the structure, is what you had created in the 1950s, when you had a centrally planned economy, when you had um, focus on heavy industry. And so one reason that we really need some gradual political reform is to give more voice to the interest groups who care about peace. Without it, that's why this kind of cartelized system we're at the very beginning of this. It may not get too bad. We may get recalibration. But if it continues down that direction, it could really bring down the system as well as create military conflict with other countries. Okay, so well, on that very ooh, pessimistic note, but I'm hoping, I'm putting my money on, on number one here. I'm betting on the Standing Committee of the Politburo. Well, it just remains then for me to thank you for <laughs> a, a formidable lecture on issues that are far-reaching significance wherever you live in the world. And these issues that are seemingly internal to China clearly will have global reverberations. They do already, and they may do with increasing intensity. So thank you very much, and please My join pleasure. with me in thanking Susan.